Hey everybody, welcome to Far Realms Radio, our podcast of many things. I'm Justin. And I'm Skylar. And today we're talking about Session Zeros. This is, in fact, our Session Zero. Yeah, so bear with us. I come from different backgrounds about D&D, and they're similar, but I think that maybe you can tell me a little bit about, in your mind, what a session zero is in our session zero here for this, and why you think that way. For me, like a session zero, and remember, big disclaimer here, everything is dependent on the table that you're playing at, right, and the people that you're playing with. Like, playing with strangers at a shop or a convention is going to be really different than playing a home game with people whose gaming preferences you know or you have good rapport with right. or you know how far you can push the lines in regards to like role play or just like making jokes. So anytime we're talking generalization, yeah. Totally. So always that disclaimer, it's always going to depend on your table. Um, but for me, like I think as a game master, like as a player, you probably don't think about session zero much except like, oh, are we actually playing? Like I got to make a character, right? All right, cool. That's mostly the players like I'm making a character. That's my goal. Um, what I think as a GM, it's really, you're going to try to gather information from your players, you know, like you got to have some options of like different premises for your campaign. And then usually after you gather that information, kind of see what people are interested in, you can pitch that campaign. Now, if you're already running a campaign with friends, you're almost always talking about, oh, hey, in the next campaign or in a future campaign, what if we did this? Or what if we went to space? My character really wants to do this. Exactly, right? You always talk about that with a group that you know. So you kind of have an idea, like, maybe Steve likes combat, but George only cares about talking to NPCs. Right. Right? Like, it's going to be different. And if you're in a group where you know those people, it's a, it's a lot easier because you already know what they're not going to like. So it helps you narrow it down, at least for me. And then, you know... Once you have that idea and you pitch it, you can kind of get your players to buy into that campaign, make your characters, and go, get going. So I didn't ever know what a Session Zero was for a long time. It wasn't part of gaming when I started gaming. Where did you learn about it? Like where, when you, because I definitely remember when I learned about it and where I was like, oh, that's a thing. But like, where was the first time you encountered it? So we really didn't do a Session Zero because we couldn't get together that much. You had to get your mom's, drive to your friend's house across town. So, like, we would play for, you know, 16 hours with a video game break in the middle. And <laughs> your characters would die, so you would roll new ones. And Session Zero, I think, really consisted of the 10 minutes before we played where my buddy would explain, oh, hey, this is the campaign that I've spent a month designing and creating this map for. Here's what the setting is. Make characters. Let's go. And so there wasn't much of a Session Zero. Um... But I think it's a really good idea because we've all played in campaigns that peter out after like two sessions and right. no one's happy or like the DM's very happy. Or telling one. Yeah. Or everyone's just kind of smiling and nodding and just happy to be playing D&D even though it's really not their cup of tea. Awkward. Yeah. But for you, what, what's a session zero for you? How did you like come about it? Because like, I mean, I didn't, it didn't, 
I don't remember reading anything about it in second edition, which is where I got involved. And it was definitely a third edition thing. It may even be 3.5. You know, it was after third edition came out. Maybe I think there was a little bit in the DMG, if I'm remembering correctly. And that's not a guarantee. And uh, But we had backed into it at that point because we had the same group of friends. You know, like when I was a kid, it was all of us playing D&D. And as teenagers, like 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And we would play the character that we wanted to play, which wasn't always what the other person wanted to play. You know, I mean, we weren't always there for the same reasons. I have a samurai in your Western uh, Middle history campaign. Too bad. Except we were teenagers, so it's like, I'm going to play a half-vampire dark version of Dracula's son, and that guy's playing, like, I'm playing a cleric whose name is Galvatron, like the Transformer. Clearly. And these two do not... <laughs> they do not co- easily coexist. Uh, so, you know, after having conflict over... But we were still going to play, you know? So, so fun. We'd have conflict and we'd, like, try to give each other what we wanted and so-and-so wanted to run this this particular thing and such-and-such such wanted to fight that monster and we would argue about it and what each character motivation was. Enough times that when we would roll up new characters, you'd be like, all right, let's have a... We called it a, a character-making session. Yeah, exactly. That's what we... Yeah. Which is basically a session it's zero. It's the same Where thing. we would sit down and we'd be like, I want to make a blank. And Mike would be like, I want to make a blah. You know? And be like, well, okay, so if I'm going to play uh, some dragoon, jumping lance-type character, and you're going to play uh, thief, assassin, ninja, what in what world can these two coexist? Yeah, exactly. I think I think three five pushed a lot more planning your character in advance because if you wanted to get into that crazy prestige class, you had to plan each level, right? So it was less of learning your character and who they were by playing and leveling up with maybe roleplay reasons, and more I think three five with the way the classes were structured. You're like you're like you have this long term goal of who you know you kind of want the character to become, and you're trying to fit that into a campaign more frequently. And I think Sessa Zero is just a name we've given in the online zeitgeist to this like idea of a character planning session, right. a session where we get the players to buy into the campaign. Yeah, and talk about it. I mean, I think for me back then, it was like, well, part of it was practical. And th- this may still be true, I guess, considering the distribution model of the game is, hey, you go to the store, you buy some books, you bring it home, you play. And we were teenagers, so we didn't have a lot of money. And we were like, all right, oh, let's, yeah. none of us have jobs. And uh, the game store didn't have a comprehensive D&D selection. It was like a lot of model figurines and comic books and magic cards and... Whatever the adults thought the kids liked. Right, plus like a shelf that was sparse and had maybe three books and then one adventure. And one of them was like the past edition that no one's playing. Right, right. And so, you know, we'd like pool our money and go and get that book, whatever we could. So part of it was we have this adventure we want to run because it's the adventure we have but the characters start at fifth level but we've never made characters starting at fifth level what about the discrepancy and stuff how do we want to handle it you know it was like a let's talk about the game we want to play which I'm only now as I'm thinking about it and talking about it out loud doesn't really happen very much with other kinds of tabletop games like it really uh, doesn't you don't sit down and to Cthulhu and be like what kind of game are we playing well, yeah even it's the role playing you games. know going in right. you know what you're getting into you go to play a Warhammer game as you and I both have done and you and it's like alright you, you, you're you gonna do this I need a ruler it's just <laughs> and it's just <laughs> cut out for this particular kind of where's that red ruler but I think even it what's weird about it is like even in even in other systems like 
uh, GURPS, let's say, or FATE, or one of the really generic, uh, flexible fate. systems. Yeah. You know, this kind of session zero happens more readily when people are making characters. I sometimes wonder about the difference between, like, D&D's like, hey, let's do a character-making session zero, where we can right. have some sense of what we're going to do. And the other ones where it's kind of baked into the... To the building the, of the character. How you set up the game, yeah, maybe, right. and is part character... is setting up the game. There's a lot of games... I mean, any video game, What's for one of the first things you get dropped into is a character creation screen. I don't know about you, but I've spent like hour or two hours in a character creation screen adjusting every detail because sometimes you can't change it later and then you're like, oh, I hate this person's hair. And then I get into the game, play it for 30 minutes, go, this is shit, and never play it again. <laughs> I mean, that basically sounds like the whole marketing shtick for The Sims. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's close. <laughs> okay, uh... This, I think, sort of covers the why, and we've talked a little bit about what you get out of it. What else? Like, what's For you, what's the ultimate goal of a Session Zero for you? For me, it's to set up a campaign that I, I want to run, because I'm the one investing most of the time and energy into running it, um, that I can run, that's within my capabilities as a DM, um, and that the players actually like and will buy into. At least, I want like, at least two of them to buy into it. Like, at least two. If you don't get at least two, you're screwed. I, I, I think, it, yeah, I think as a DM, my want out of a session zero is different than as a player. And mm -hmm. as a DM, I want two things. I want to know what the players want. And if I can provide the tone that they want while still getting what I want out of it. And I'm a pretty easy DM, so I'm like, let's run through a published adventure because it's a common reference point. You know, this is the adventure we're gonna run. This is the tone that it has. This is the kind of character that would be appropriate, blah, 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 blah. Uh, as a player, what I want out of a session zero is, is my character okay? I have this idea, and I, want, I have questions I want to answer. Can I, wanna, I get it approved? Can right. I get your stamp of approval? And I want to, and maybe also to learn about hooks in the world and this in the game we have, whatever the that version of that is, that make it easy to tie into. Not just because having run games, I'm like, let's make the DM's job easier, but also because it's part of how I get. It also get in the character. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm big it's on it's, fulfillment. It's not the GM's job to create the buy-in for you. I mean, I, I totally agree. They said that very succinctly earlier, and I was like, yeah, that's. He's, I mean, it's, it's totally not right. their job to give you a reason to be an adventurer. That's not their. I mean, they should give you something that you can work with. You know, sure, like pick from the something. Like you don't can't just sit there and be like, all right, because like that's the GM's job. That's why you're doing it. Like otherwise, you might as well go play a GMless game. But. I think the first thing when you're doing a session zero that you need to really establish is scheduling commitments and campaign length. Yeah. Because yes. everything depends on your table, right? Mm -hmm. And if when you're if you're not getting together, you can't. That table doesn't mean shit. Um, so I think the first thing you should always kind of establish because this kind of controls what you can and can't do as a DM, right? Like, let's say like a frequent game, like once a week, right? Every week. Versus an infrequent game, like once a month. The things you can do in those games changes, right? Like, you're playing four times as much if you're playing well, every week. And also session length. That Well, yeah, totally that too. Like, I think that plays into the, the uh, scheduling commitment, right? What can your players do? Like, when we were younger, I'd play for eight hours straight, take a break, and play another eight hours. All night long. Now, yeah. I get to four or five hours, and I'm like, oh, man, I, I'm tired, done. and I'm done. So I think campaign, like, scheduling commitments are super important. 
Um, and then infrequent versus frequent is always something to consider, right? Because if you're doing really complex plot twists or story arcs or really detailed world building, that's hard to do with infrequent games. Because we've all had, like, no one remembers who that NPC is. Maybe you don't. The players hardly remember what happened last mm -hmm. session because it was a month mm -hmm. ago and two of them missed it. Mm -hmm. So I think frequent and infrequent games, like, is important. Like, if you're, if it's an infrequent game, in-game time becomes way more valuable. So you need to keep the pace up so things are happening. Right. Right? Like, we ran an Out of the Abyss campaign together before. Right. And I think we didn't break out of jail for four sessions. Yeah. Oh, my God. Can you imagine if we were spreading that game out more infrequently, how frustrating that would be? It'd be yeah. like, it's been four months, and we haven't got out of the we're jail. We're still in prison. We're still in prison at the start of the I'm campaign. I'm tired of this. I'm done. I have no player agency at this point in the campaign, I and that's a campaign that fizzles out. Because maybe Out of the Abyss wasn't a good choice, or maybe how they're running it for a really infrequent schedule of games. So I think that one of the other things that is important to talk about is, and you talked about it, brought it up just now, campaign length. Like, how, how do you qualify how, you it? how long it's going to be? And one of the interesting, this actually I think is a disconnect, uh, or maybe it's targeted, I should say, at experienced players, but to a new player. It doesn't mean necessarily, or even new to the game. And we usually talk about in the game as in D&D, like, oh, well, this game is going to last for 15 levels. Which they don't know. They just signed a contract for three years of their life and blood. However long that means, right? <laughs> you know, and, and if you follow, like, the Pathfinder Adventure paths where they're doing... Like, I know it, and you know it. I know, I know. They you don't know, know So, it. like, Pathfinder and Paizo, they put out these great adventure paths once a month, you know. They have other adventures, too. But let's say you're a subscriber, as I have been for many, many of them. And you're like, let's do Rise of the Rune Lords. You always have Legacy of Fire. You have one a month. But the thing is... Those six adventures, it takes about a year and a half, two years to get through, just to get through them. In the meanwhile, you've stacked up a whole two, three other adventure pads to do, you know, but let, being able to say, and each of those takes you to like 15 or 18 or somewhere up there, and D&D &D I think is exactly the same in this regard, right? It's, you sign up for Storm Giants Thunder, I think it is, right? And, and, it, and it takes you also to 15, and yeah. you're going to be like, all right, so we're going to be doing this for... A lot. We're invested. Yeah. And I think that's like, I think character level based is one that is a really accessible way of explaining to a player. Because if you've played, you know, kind of, you have an idea of how long it takes you to get to that level. You have an idea. But that's something that I couldn't give you a formula for. It's just something from playing for 20 years that I kind of know how long it's going to take me to get to 15th level. It's a little different in each edition. But once you kind of know the GM and you know the pace of the game, you can kind of estimate. Plus, you, we all know you never get as, especially if you run games, you never get as far as you think. <laughs> no, just no. No. So, and the nice thing is adventures are usually organized or camp entire campaigns are organized by like first to 15th level. Like it'll say it in the subtitle almost. So I think that's like one of the best. But if you're homebrewing, which surprisingly the majority of players still just homebrew their own worlds. Bless them. I, I'm lazy and I homebrew a world and plop adventures in it. Bless them. Bless them. I don't have time for that. Yeah. But I think if you're doing it plot based, right? So... You can do a plot-based one, right? Like, if, for example, in the pirate campaign I'm running right now, it's clearly revolving around what happens with the pirate king. Do you mm -hmm. defeat him? Does he take over the part of the world he's going for? So you can do a plot-based one, right? Where it's like the campaign ends when this happens, when you reach this goal. Right. And you can set that goal, or you can have it be like a goal the players can work towards incrementally. It just kind of depends on how, you know, what, what the main theme of your campaign is. If it's more plot-based, I assume you have an idea of what your plot is. Either way, I think with those approaches, you really need to start with the end in mind and work backwards. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think it's worthwhile talking about that with the players, too, to sit down in a session zero and be like, here's where this story goes, you know? Uh, so right. like a movie trailer, right? You but know, spoiler free. Okay, so and, and to use your pirate game as an example. All right, there's a pirate king. This story goes toward you're going to encounter a variety of pirate-based shenanigans. There's going to be a conflict at some point between the Seven Nation Army that's fighting him and the pirate king and the players and also whatever the player motivations are. Being being able to give them hooks at that time is, I think, it's key and also makes it actually easier for the DM, right? If you're running the game and you let them oh, yeah. cleanly into some of where the story goes, then they'll drive it very often. And you don't That's have my to... Goal. I don't right. want to have to drive that story around. At least in that campaign, it's very sandboxy. Right. I want you guys to drive the ship. Literally drive the ship around. <laughs> yeah. I mean, exactly. And, and, and that makes it far less work for the DM. Totally. Which makes it more I, easy to have. And if you want the least amount of work, you can always take the approach, which I think most of us took when we were younger, where it was essentially just an endless campaign with a Monster of the Week approach. There weren't tons of complex plot lines. We just wanted to level up, get cool shit, and fight monsters. There was one time that we opened the Monster Manual to A. Oh, you did the A through Z? We did. We did. We managed not to die. Which was impressive, considering we were 14, 15, and 16. And it's not, it was second edition, so it wasn't balanced. And But we followed all the rules. Like, okay, this creature comes in however many roll the dice for how many, in what habitat. That means we're in a swamp. All right. So now we're in a swamp. And we managed to beat it. So now it has this much treasure. Roll on the table. Where's that going to be in a swamp? Right. You know, it, it leads to a very destroying, very entertaining adventure. I would recommend it once. Yeah. I think the other thing, before you even get to, like, character creation, setting... Is important, and before you even get to setting, I think something that a lot of people skip over, um, just like the scheduling, right? Because you got to think about the real world stuff with a session zero a lot of the time. I think house table rules is a really good thing, mm. just like in general in game rules that you're going to run for your house, whether it's like drop dice policies, certain rules about like role playing or like a turn timer. Everyone has their things, you know. If you drop a dice, it doesn't count, or maybe it does, or unannounced dice rolls like hey you can only roll if I say you can roll for something like that dice doesn't count so people care really a lot about right so people really care about that stuff like there's a lot of things to consider there like food and drink like some players you know alcohol at the table can be an issue we're drinking right now and we clearly encourage that there was one time I was playing in college and I was with a bunch of my I went to bard college basically yes he actually is a bard Ha! He actually went to Bard College. So there's like a bunch of actors who are playing D&D, which is really fun, as now is in the zeitgeist with Critical Role and all this. Of course. In one of their dorms, and we're all playing D&D, and we invite one of the other guys, and we were all super nerdy, and we'd all played D&D before, and none of, you know, we were just like super nerdy kids. And one guy shows up, and he brings a six-pack of beer. And we all were like, oh, no, oh, oh you can't do that. No, you can't do that. It's not okay at the table. Oh, no. Oh, whoa. And we gave him total stink eye, and he oh, did not come back. That's what I would have said in high school, too. Like, we're like, whoa, dude, whoa, this is good, wholesome fun here. It's like that old ad with a kid in the overalls, and he's like, <laughs> I got d and I don't need to, like, loiter outside like a punk. <laughs> oh, I will man. say I was very, very pleased when Critical Role recreated that ad with Matthew Mercer and the, and the group, like, as the people in the ad it was, it was quite great <laughs> yeah but uh I, I think i think it's actually definitely worth talking about and what i would come later to realize it actually took until i went to conventions to realize this and uh, that just tells you some of how dense i am 
that beer and pretzel style gaming is a long and storied tradition, not only just for like tabletop wargaming, but for D&D and others too. You know? I mean, it breaks that roleplay nice for a lot of people. As long as people are comfortable with alcohol at the table, because some people it's going to be a big no-no. You know, everyone's got their own deals. I'm very much like, do your own thing, I'm not your dad. Well, I mean, that's like, that's part of the game too, right? Like, and it's very core. It's like, hey, be the character you want to be, yeah. show up at the table and do what you want, get what fun you want out of it. Oh, I want crunch. Oh, I want role play. Oh, I want totally. whatever the different players want. And yeah. also, don't shit on somebody else. Yeah. And once again, it depends how well you know your group. Like, if you already know your group pretty well, you already know these things. You're not going to be talking about this. It's just assumed. But I think it, the other part of it is, you know, and that's really about logistics. Like that's, that touches a little bit on what are we here to do? One of the things that I really, uh, it's really important for me, I think about a session zero is what I call setting the container. And, okay. you know, you call it like psychological safety and it is that, but I think it's a little more than that too. There's like the, okay, we're going to imagine together. We're going to play a game together. We're going to spend hours in each other's time. We have to probably not hate each other's company and hopefully nobody smells real bad, you know? There's always one guy. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> How do you tell that person? Oh, like, it's the hardest thing. Just like, I'm going to buy you some deodorant. Put it deodorant in their backpack and just never say anything. <laughs> but setting the container, I think, so part of it is, you know, can we co-imagine, but also, and this is, I think, part of the DM's role too, is to set the tone and maintain what that cohesive tone looks like. So... You know, every DM has their own way of running a game and every table feels different. But being able to draw sort of a boundary around what what the idea of the game is and say, in this steampunk game, here are the things that you can do. Plus also, here are the things that your character can do separate. You know, and a, a good example might be, here are some tokens that you can spend, like a hero point, or we're going to use plot twist cards to empower the player to do this particular kind of thing. And here's what they can and cannot do. Because otherwise, people, I think, often get stuck in the place of either I'm going to try anything off the wall, or I don't know what the bounds are, so I'm not going to Especially new players. Like, you know new players, and it's like the best part about having a new player is they all have this moment where they realize, oh my god, I can do anything. Like, they have this moment where they're like, oh, I'm not bound to these restrictions like in computer RPGs or video games, or I can just try it and see if it works. And it's really cool, because it's so different than most games anyone else has ever played. Now, maybe they played a lot of tabletops or a lot of role-playing, or they're out LARPing, yeah, sure. But it's a really magical moment. And that's always the coolest part as a GM is to witness a new player have that moment of like, oh my God, I can do anything. You can see it in their eyes. Yeah, and they're like, they, they, you see these wheels click because they pause for a second and they're like, oh cool. And usually they're like, I'm going to try to... they're really excited for that next I'm going to try to steal that guy's pouch. Yeah, and then, and then <laughs> they kind of, it devolves into their first murder hobo experience. <laughs> but it's kind of unavoidable. The game kind of like really puts you on rails towards that, yeah, you know. Okay. A, I think the other part of it is... That they can see what the... I mean, I guess this is what you just talked about. The possibilities of it are. But also that they see that they have the power to... to Player agency. Themselves. Yeah, right. Kind of. I think that's an important part. I think the, the one thing to be careful with Session Zeros is it doesn't just become this like big group checklist that you go through. You know, I think it's better if it's more organic. If the atmosphere is like you're chilling, you're having a couple of drinks, maybe you're eating dinner and just like... Paying attention to what people say and what they like about certain things rather than like, all right, I got this checklist. Let's talk about how we're going to go through experience. Like, clearly, you need to talk about it at some point. Like, mm -hmm. 
I'm a big fan of Milestone Experience because then you get less murder hoboing, right? Like, yeah, you could kill that guy, but uh, you're probably not going to gain anything, and now you just look like a dick. Right. You know? So, I, you know, little things like that I think are important. Uh, but I think it's also important to not over... It shouldn't feel like an interview or a test, you know? Because... People are good at knowing what they like, but they're bad at predicting what they're going to like in the future. They don't know what they want. I think that's a good insight, you know, and it definitely, I have definitely been a part of sessions and inadvertently run sessions too, where it was more pressure than the player, one or more of them want it. And I, and I realized after the fact and was like, ah, they don't like that much spotlight time. Hmm, that's interesting. But I think that that's part of, Part of it is like being able to sense out like what is it you're in this for? You know, why are you playing this game? Because it's not just a normal board game. Totally. You know, it's not just like playing pretend either or it comes whatever. Back to knowing your players and knowing what they're playing for and how they're gonna express that in the game. Is it time for tavern talk? I think you know, I think we should stop into that tavern over there. I'm a little thirsty. I think I like there's a little brew. There's always a tavern. Welcome to Tavern Talk, the part of the show where we review a brew and we toast to you, our glorious listeners. This week, we're going to be reviewing Delirium Tremens, a lovely golden Belgian ale. But be careful, it has a higher alcohol percent than you might realize. Like most Belgians, it is a lovely kick in the face. But it's super drinkable. I think as a rating, I would give it maybe an 8.5 out of 10. I'd probably give it a 9. That little pink elephant is... He's my buddy. It's pretty good. One of the things I like about it is it's got a really malty flavor. It's it's nice and got a good mouthfeel. But it's not heavy. But it's not very heavy. One of the things I don't like about it is that as far as Belgians go, it's not my favorite. Really? What's yeah. your favorite? Golden Drock. Okay. We'll do that one one that's, time. That's a valid valid reason. I Right? We'll have to. What's uh, the trivia you know about Delirium Tremens? So Delirium Tremens actually is referring, the, the phrase refers to the alcohol withdrawals. Ooh. And the trembling, the shaking, and the delirium, the hallucinations that people experience. Hence the little pink elephant on the can. It's like that scene in Dumbo, the original animated <laughs> one, where he like starts pink hallucinating because he's all drunk and withdrawed. Pink elephants. Yeah, pink elephants, exactly. Pink elephants. <laughs> Speaking of pink elephants, uh, well... I guess there's not any in the Monster Manual, but there are elephants, and that leads into our promo that we're offering. That's right. For the first eight weeks of the show, we're doing a promo, a giveaway, a raffle for all of you listeners. What you'll get is the Holy Trinity of D&D, the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual. The core rulebook. The core rulebooks. And hey, maybe you have these, but you know what? They make great gifts. Maybe you have a new player who doesn't have one. It's such good gifts. It's such an awesome thing to be able to give to new players. Especially when you got it for free from us. Totally. The Monster Manual in particular is so good for this. Like, here's a book of all the cool monsters. Have fun looking through it. That was always my favorite one. So the way it works is, if you share our show via social media, you can at Far Realms Radio on Twitter, at Far Realms Radio on Instagram. You can email us and tell us about how you shared your show. You can show us a picture about how you shared our show. Some proof that you shared the show. Anything It could like be that. like a screenshot of a test message with a friend where you're like, hey, Check out this dope podcast. We will add you to our raffle, and then after eight weeks, we will pull the winner. We'll let you know the specific date once we have it set in future episode. Good luck. And now, back to the show.
But I think another thing that you need to establish, especially when you don't know people, are boundaries. And you talked about this earlier. What was the phrase that you used? The container? Container. The container, right? And for me, I call these role-playing safety rules, right? Yeah. So, of course, when I first saw that, I laughed. And then I clicked and read the article and realized, wow, I'm an asshole. So, <laughs> and I was reading about, you know, the most common strategy. If you've been to a convention, you've probably seen this. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. What are these cards for? It's an index card with a giant X on it. Huh. And there's no words on it. There's nothing else. It's just a giant X. It's red or black usually. And what this does is it's a card you hold up when you're getting to subject matter that you're not comfortable talking about or you don't want to role play through or what for whatever reason. It's some kind of personal, ethical, political thing. Um, for example, in my games, I don't allow sexual violence. It's not something that it needs to happen at the table. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just not cool with it. Like, And people may have histories of that. And that's just a personal thing. So... You know, things like that, like, you never know. Like, maybe that guy's mom died and you don't, he doesn't want to go explore the, the funeral home in the game because his mom just passed away. Maybe you don't know that. Right. And if he brings it up, it's like, one, he's doing it in front of a group of people he may not be comfortable doing that in right. front of. And it ruins the versus militude of the game and the pacing. And now everyone's not, it's a buzzkill. Now everybody feels bad but, because we inadvertently stepped on John's toes. And exactly. Like, oh, now the game's now. dead. The game uh, is dead in the water. However, if John has that card he can hold up and the DM can see, like, this is a subject that he needs to veer away from, you can gracefully do some hand waving, maybe even literally like I'm doing right now, and <laughs> wave things away from that, like, oh, but anyways, well, this happens outside, and you're just, your attention is drawn there. I think one of the best tools I've heard for this, it might have come from, I think it was Robin Laws who wrote about this, is called Lines and Veils. And I, I think that this is a totally invaluable tool. It's not right for every session zero. It is right to talk about at every table. Well, at a session zero, you might actually talk about this you might be directly. You might be yeah. explicit. I think it's worth being explicit about lines and veils with every table at some point. And it's really up to, I think, the DM to bring it up. Or somebody else if the DM doesn't. You know, like, it's the table needs to talk about it at some point. And it's part of... it's. Maybe I'll say it's entirely the tone and feel because this is all about the feel of it. And it's like with a board game, you don't have to worry about this because the constraints of the game are pretty clearly defined. You know, like, oh, I don't want to play Nemesis, the board game where you're a space soldier trying to escape aliens like Alien the movie because I hate horror. Okay, fine. I, that's like a really clear thing. But Lions and Veils are... Ways that players can talk about things that they're okay with and things that they're not okay with and things that they're okay with, but not directly. So, for example, uh, a veil might be, like in Hollywood, the classic adage is you can never kill a puppy on screen or any pet. No animals can have explicit violence in Hollywood film because it is the fastest way unless you want to turn your audience off but if you want to carry someone to hate a character oh they will hate kick, that kick the dog technique. guaranteed that if you That's, are violent toward a pet or an animal they will the audience it. will feel animosity my, toward that my character. favorite example of that is american psycho where he literally murders a homeless person and you don't care and then he kicks a dog it doesn't show it it pans away but you hear the yelp and all of a sudden everyone hates this right. guy Right. He just murders someone. No one cares. He kicks that little dog, though, and it's all of a sudden, thing. Patrick Bingham is evil. And there's a lot of better writing than I can talk about here about why that is. But the nature of it basically boils down to there are things that players are okay with happening, and there are things that they're not okay with happening. But of the things they're okay with, there's a large subset that can happen 
quote unquote off screen. screen. That's the veil. So, you know, in film, for instance, the cardinal rule is like you just talked about, you can kick or hurt or any kind of animal off screen and the audience will be okay. But if you show that actually that animal being killed on screen, they'll check out. Not only will they hate the character, but there's a non-trivial number of them that will be like, I'm going to turn this off now, or I'm going to get up and leave the theater because I am not here to watch puppies die. I'm not into it. I mean, it's like not the first time I saw the John Wick, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. This is a little much. I don't need that. Like, I mean, that was controversial geez. for that reason because they killed the dog on yeah, camera. on I'm camera. Like, Holy smokes. I know. That's ballsy. Whew. So, so a, veil, a veil would be, you can do that kind of thing, but it can't happen on camera, I mean, which means that in the case of any, it happens over yeah. there, you know, the dog got killed before we got there, or after we left the scene, or we know it happened, and it can happen in the story, but we can't ever be a part of it, or witness it, yeah, or talk it about it. it can't be happening right. on screen. And for some people, they might be okay with that, and others are like, no, just right. expunge it completely, I don't want that anywhere near my game. A line is a more strict contract a line would be we don't do this we don't do this this doesn't exist in our story so for instance sexual violence that's something that i have a line very excellent line like we that's just not it's our fantasy escapist world so in my fantasy escapist world you know what doesn't happen any of that yeah because obviously this is escapist fantasy and these are the kinds of things that we all need to be able to have with each other exactly for some people that might be like slavery or some other personal issue or like uh, it could be physical violence from a parent, it could be genocide. or it could be genocide, yeah. or it, it could, could be, be racism, or it could yeah. be like it's different for every different kind of you and know any group and your table. It's going to depend on their experiences as people and why are they playing this game. So like after you go over like role playing safety rules, like or, and that may be a conversation with your group. It may not even be something you have to talk about. I explicitly recommend it at some point. At some every point, I, I agree. Like especially if there's someone you haven't played with before, like let them know. And I think one of the most important things is let them know if at any point in this game something comes up that you were uncomfortable with that you don't like, communicate that to me. Talk about tell it. the group like whatever you're most comfortable with communicating it. Let Privately, me know because that's publicly, something whatever. At least as a game master, I want to address that. I want to make your experience fun. I don't want you to like feel like you can't say, "Hey, I don't like this part of the experience that we're having." Like don't like you got to let them know though that they can tell you that. Because a new player doesn't know that they can say that to a GM totally. and have it matter. And there are power dynamics Because too, they may right? feel, well, there's the GM power. New players see the GM as this authority force where you and I have played for a long time. We've been players, we've been DMs. So for us, it's more of like, oh, you're trying to keep shit together on the behind that screen, huh? Oh man. Okay. Too bad guys, we tagged left. You guys have a lot going on <laughs> yeah. right now in your characters. I'm gonna see if I can keep up. Yeah, exactly. You know the, the, the burden of running a game. So a new player may not know that. So it's good to let them know like, hey, if something comes up, tell me. Like, maybe you're not using cards. That's fine. Like, and sometimes, as a GM, it's nice. Players will tell other players what they're not okay with. Oh, yeah. And we've seen this at tables. And sometimes it works out well, and you never have to deal with it again. Sometimes, you know, if there are people that don't know each other that well, and they don't know where those boundaries are, you know, it can cause a problem. And it can create a little weird vibe at the table. So I think it's something good, especially with new people, to break that ice and just be like, hey, is there anything that you're just really not cool with? Because I want you to feel comfortable at our table. Especially yeah. when people who don't roleplay maybe don't understand this as much. Like, once you get into, like, roleplaying a little bit more and you're more comfortable with it. Like, some players are not okay with character versus character conflict. Yes, a, I, a large number. I personally love it. But I always want to make sure that the player knows that, like, that it's our characters. Right. Like, 
I can think of it, at least one of the games we're playing right now, I love that my nefarious little goblin and this paladin, that the paladin hates him. I love it. <laughs> yes. I want to foster that. It creates a good group. Like, you know, it works. And clearly the player is an experienced player. He knows that Like, I don't actually dislike him. It's just that our characters are totally misaligned. And yet there are some friends I have that I still play with today who really feel very strongly that character-on-character conflict is not, okay. not part of this game. What's different and special about this game, and it's different for every player, but in, in this case, and I think there are a lot of people who are like this, they're like, what's different and special about this game is that we all get to play whatever character we want co-op in the world we want which no video game nor any board game today can do totally not at that level no way and i think that's why establishing is something you may want to talk about as we get into establishing your game roles and your table play style is is player versus player stuff okay how is that handled is it a dice kit? what does it look like, like? Can, how do you make it you fun can you steal from your other players because especially I don't from know about players who aren't involved in it you know clearly right i remember i can't I'm sure you've had this experience playing when we were younger. I would have two best friends who all the time would try to murder each other. They would straight up, like, one of them would want a magic item, and the other one would be like, no, I want that magic item. I draw my sword, and I attack him. And the other player's like, well, I cast Fireball. And the other player's like, well, you don't have time to do that because I just drew my sword and attacked you. So you get into this whole, you know, and then you're like, oh, God, do I have them both roll for now this? Now I'm your friend adjudicating consequences for And so, you know, you're like, so, are you sure you really want to do that? Oh, my God, look at that. There's another chest with more magic items around the corner. <laughs> oh, my God. Welcome to Power Or, Pit. you know, like, oh, orcs <laughs> attack you. Fuck you. Like, you know, you always have that option, too. But I think, you know, when you're looking at that stuff, like, you got There's a couple that, for me, I think are the most important. They would be, at least in terms of, you got to establish your game rules, right? Like, after you establish house and table rules, which I think should come first, then you can go into, like, all right, how are we going to establish our game rules and our table play style, right? Like, play style, if you're with a group, they probably know your play style already. It's, it might be a little more hack and slash. You may lean a little bit more into the immersive storytelling. It might be a mix of both. I personally like to try to get a nice 50-50 split of tactical combat and role-playing. But I think for game rules, at least for me, the ones that I think matter the most to establish with your players, like, because remember, managing player expectations is literally half the battle of a session zero. That's why you're doing it. Um, experience and level-ups. Are you doing milestone experience or, or level-up? Are you doing experience as it's written, raw, in the rules? That's the phrase we use now, by the way. Raw. Uh, rules as written. Or rye, rules as interpreted. Oh. So, PC deaths are another one that's really important. Do you allow resurrection? Do you have to roll new characters? This is all setting expectations. Do you allow, like, lingering, like, you, can that player be a ghost version of their character? Right. Like, the lingering soul right. class we've seen in Homebrew, which what, they, what should they expect? Yeah, right? Like, how, you know, you want to talk about that with your players, because I don't mind my PCs dying as long as they can do something cool on their way out. Other players especially new players who haven't played back in the day, they're very story and narrative focused, right? Can you imagine if Critical Role had one of their main characters just fucking die and not come back? Yeah, sorry, you fell into a People trap. People would be pit, so sad. A trap, and it was just the entrance is right inside the door of the dungeon. Right. And it and got a critical on you, and you died. And you and I would love that, because that's how D&D goes sometimes. I know, but that's, I mean, but come on. Like, it would be, it would it would be, be so climactic. It would be a terrible narrative. It'd be terrible. But for me, that's kind of the charm of D&D is that sometimes that happens, just like real life. Like, that's part of the great part of the game. The other thing I think is, at least for me personally, is crit and fumbles. I love homebrew crit and fumble rules. 
even if it's just a chart that doesn't have any mechanical effect and just gives you flavor as a DM. Like you roll that D100 and you're like, oh, you slit his throat and blood pours out of his jugular. You know, like so many flavor even. Just like we use sometimes a crit deck and a fumble deck. I used to personally roll on crit and fumble tables. Tables. I would, I would have tables and players would roll on that. Um, and clearly, just like the free parking space of Monopoly, it changes the math of the game, you know. But it's fun, and I like doing it. So that's something that like I like to give people a head up, though. Like, hey, in my game, if you fumble, something bad might happen to you. Yeah, you say this, but just because I feel like I need to call you out here, you also <laughs> take out all of the life-threatening everything from the Crichton Fumble deck. Yes, well, those are not meant for the levels we're at yet. Yeah, you say they're level-sorted. I'm going to do a meat grinder, but I'm not... I'm going to leave this level 10 card of death. Hey, with the... Okay, you say that, but with the low-level cards I've been using, one of our players in the first round of combat shot an arrow, had it reflect back into his own face, and killed him. <laughs> I know. In one shot. Totally true. And that was with the basic level danger cards. I think that this is exactly... The, <laughs> the, this is like an optional thing that sometimes I've talked about it as session zero, but isn't always appropriate depending on your players, as always. Uh, which is, what is the role... If you have new players, it's definitely worth talking about this. What is the role of the dice? Pun intended. Oh, man, that's a what, whole, what whole is episode in itself. Why, why do we roll the dice? And, you know, for now, I think we can say, well, it's an abstraction on top of a very complicated scenario. Did you succeed at this very complicated scenario? Narrate as much detail as you want, which is why a lot of DMs will be like, if you give a good narration, I'll give you advantage or a bonus or whatever. Inspiration that nobody uses. Right. I mean, God, I really want to like... I want to like inspiration. I, mean, I really want to like inspiration. I tried so hard, but I hate it. It was shit. What else do you want to cover for a, a session zero? Um, we touched on this earlier, but it's different than setting. I think it's really important to differentiate your campaign flavor slash genre slash mood slash whatever um, from your setting. They're different things, right? So you're, you may be pitching these to your players. Is it high fantasy is it dark fantasy? Is it sci-fi, low magic, modern, post-apocalyptic? Like, when you're pitching these kind of campaign ideas to your players, those are probably the la- that's probably the language you're going to use, right? Because they know what that means. Like, if I say steampunk, you're like, ooh, kind of like Eberron. Like, you have an idea of what that, what that means. So are you saying, like, this is my setting. Let's say I'm going to play in... Forgotten Realms, the default setting, yeah. but it's going to have a steampunk. Exactly. Theme. And so maybe you say to your players, like, hey, like as you're in the session zero, what do you guys think of Forgotten Realms with the steampunk Eberron bent to it? Would you guys want to play in a campaign like that? Or any could make it more plot based. But I think just even dropping that and seeing who picks up on that and thinks it's fun or cool, you can kind of get an idea. And you're going to, you got to be flexible. You're going to have to throw out a couple ideas. This is where an appendix in, I think, is really crucial, right? You know, where you can say, here is the list of reference and source material that, as the DM, I use to envision this setting and also the tone. Totally. I think that comes into what material you're going to allow and getting into all of that. But I think before you even get to getting to those specifics is, what are these premises of me throwing out do people react the most to? Right? Because if you say, hey, low magic d and I'm like, yeah, cool, no, I'll pass. <laughs> um, I think... Almost every single core class uses a spell in some way, and the monk is also pretty much just using spells and calling them abilities. So, right, like what's there's more classes that 
cast spells and there are classes that I mean, do not. I mean, D&D is very much high fantasy. I mean, I, and yeah, you can run it, but like me personally, I don't want to play in a low magic, like low fantasy setting. I'll play in a dark fantasy setting. Only if it's got the same kind of crunch and power awesomeness, because I want my character yeah. to feel like a badass. Well, here's the thing. I will switch to a different gamer system if I want low magic. There's plenty of other systems that do low magic, like D20 Modern, better than Dungeons & Dragons does. I really like D20 Modern yeah. for the record. I think it's one of the most underrated ideas of the last... I agree. Maybe two I mean, decades. If given the choice, I'm always going to choose D&D, but I respect what they've done. Rant over. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, when you're talking about these flavors or genres or moods, once again, it you know, you've probably been talking, if you're playing with a group of friends that you know, you've probably talked about this for a while, and you're probably all like, yeah, I'm really excited to run like an anime campaign or a dark fantasy thing. And so you probably know, like, okay, my players are really stoked on playing a Spelljammer campaign, so I don't really, I can skip this stuff. But I think this is an important thing because once you establish like a flavor genre or mood the players are actually like kind of interested in it's like Spelljammer but Jules Verne style yeah and it's it just you know it's a quick description it doesn't have to be a lot just enough for a player to be like yes I like that or no it sounds terrible think of it like you're on Netflix and you're reading the description of the, the movie yeah. or TV show well, that you like, watch you, it's funny because like we commit to watching entire seasons of shows and we have trailers and like entire hours for movies but for D&D we're like yeah whatever DM I trust you like I'm, I just want to play this fucking <laughs> entertain game entertain me bro like, it's better be good you know like, whereas we're like Iron Fist I hate it but I'm going to watch as yeah. much of it as I can start yeah exactly right don't get me started on that that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole episode itself mm. but i think once you've kind of like seen what people pick up on in terms of your premise or your flavor of genre mood you get into the actual setting and i think the one of the biggest things when you choose a setting how important is the setting to your campaign in the first place because i know you and i have played entire non-setting campaigns i think it's a really good insight right because sometimes the best camp there's in a setting in Dungeons and Dragons that's unspoken. It's this high fantasy Dungeons and Dragons. Now it's kind of forgotten realms almost. But like, if you open the book and you don't specify a setting, it doesn't matter because it's all exists within this universe. They didn't used to have one. They eventually had to- Non-setting was the thing. Because of marketing and branding, they had to call that in different editions, one of either Greyhawk or Mistara. Right? You know, and the two are not the same, except when they are. Except, yeah, and then, <laughs> right, and then you're like, oh, we got Ravenloft over here. Like, it just, like... That's its own right? can of worms, man. It's, Having run a few Ravenloft games, I will tell you, they never turn out the way you expect. Oh, no, you think, like, oh, I've run this one before, but no. Uh-uh. Well, when you have a good villain, though, you know, things can... Is Strahd a good villain, though? I mean, like, he's a well That's, a, that's a good debate, I'm not actually. sure that he is. That could be a great debate that we will have to have at some point, because yeah. you could make a case for either side, I think. I mean... <sighs> yeah, anyway... <laughs> I think that's exactly why it's important to kind of... How important is the setting to your campaign? Because if you're playing in Curse of Strahd, oh my god, the setting of the campaign is everything. But if you and I are picking up some of the Citadel and we're just going to sit down and like start playing these adventures totally. and kind of just linking them up, totally. there's no setting there. It doesn't matter. The setting does not matter outside of like, oh, the Yawning Portal. Players only care about what is around them. It's like video games. Like... Most of the time, that shit's not rendered until it comes on screen or you get close to it. That's true. Right? It's like a rendering distance. Your players are like characters in a game. Like, they only care about what they can fucking see, what is rendered around them. Most of the time, unless you're playing a really political game with big factions, then you zoom out every now and then to that, like, bird's eye view. They don't care. They're like, what's in this tavern that I'm in? Like, I... 
I, I think there's a whole thing, and Robin Laws has talked about this quite extensively. You know, he's written about the different uh, how to capture the macro level for a game and the movers and shakers while also the micro level, the tactical. And I think there was one series of blog posts he wrote where the players had two different characters they would play, each one. One was like, I think it was a sci-fi one, they had like a space marine character, mm -hmm. and another one was the politician as part of the board who would like decide, Councilmember. yes, who would decide what the space marines did next. I've seen that. And so it was like politics and then also Fight. Yeah, I've seen really cool games run like that, especially now with streaming. Like, I've seen a game that Adam Coble runs where all the people watching are members of the factions in the game. Ah. And so he'll run a faction session, That's which is neat. It's kind of cool, right? Because he is able to give all of the viewers something to do that doesn't, like, you know, they're not jumping in and breaking the game with weird suggestions. And it's cool because all of these people can be like, oh, I'm in this faction, this is my team. And they will take a turn, you know, in the game essentially, where they all decide what they're going to do. And then that affects what happens in the game world to all these characters, which I think is a really cool way to do it. Like, if you're going to use streaming and give your audience agency, I think that's a fantastic way to do I it. I totally agree. That's brilliant. Fucking brilliant. I think one of the best ways I've seen in recent times, and I go back and forth about this. I've, I've done both of them, but I think one of the best ways I've seen to handle a Session Zero, uh, and actually your Sunday game has this quite quite excellently, which is... To hand a player primer out to the players. Except right? don't make it 50 pages like I did, because no one's going to fucking read it. I mean, it. I've definitely made like 50-plus <laughs> page packets. I'm like, here's our campaign packet. For anyone listening, the tip to a good campaign primer is brevity. I, I think that one, maybe two sheets. Like in my idea, in my mind, one the, is ideal, the ideal player primer... People might a, read it if you hand them one sheet. A dual-sided, you know... Yeah, oh, sheet, there you go. One sheet, Still boom, one boom. piece of paper. But see, the tough part is no you have to cover staple. like... Style and theme and tone totally. and setting and then also all your homebrew mechanics, right? Like we're going to use feats. We're going to do this particular and that's a, a lot and it starts to grow. So maybe maybe I'll revise it and say that I think the ideal player primer is and this is just my opinion, but like, all right, let's say two pages front and back of both. So four total and one and two are here's the setting and the characters setting characters and then number three maybe is homebrew rules and number four is wild card you can totally that, yeah something like that and i think like keeping it short is the trick but before you even like, i think the thing sometimes though is that player primer you may not be able to throw that together until the end of the session or you may need to send it to now it's nice because you can just send it to people online like i did you really have to get that information gathering first before you can create a solid player primer i think because you may come in with something you really want to run and all your players are like yeah i don't like eberron i don't yeah, want to run in that game. I, I don't want to do that I, i'm not interested in that at all I, you know it's so point. it might be back to the drawing board so i think it's i think you know depending on whether how far you get in that session zero it might be something that you do afterwards with the information that you've gathered all right so you were talking about character creation earlier, and there were a few specific things that you think were valuable. Tell, tell me about that. So one of the, I think, obviously, you know, we're talking about setting. The whole point of the setting is to give your players enough that they can make characters in that setting and, like, buy into it a little bit. So 
uh, what you choose to allow, like, in your game as a DM has a big effect, right? Like, if you are running, like, a dark fantasy, like, low magic setting, and someone's like, I just want to be a wizard with a wand, it may not work out quite as well. I would like to be a unicorn or, that got turned into a person and has fairy powers. Exactly. You, you not going like, to fly in your Warhammer dark fantasy. Right? And so you got to think about also complexity. Like, what sources are you allowing? Because if you allow homebrew here, it may create complexities with this. So I find oftentimes it's almost better to give players like, hey, because I've tried the use anything you want. Here's a here's a library of things approach. And I've used the like just use the player handbook approach. And what I find is best is almost, especially if you're homebrewing your own campaign, is to curate a few things which you think work really well. And that way you can present your players like choose your options from these. Mm. If there's something else you really, really want, I'm mm -hmm. sure we can make it work. But if you could pick from these, it'll be more rewarding because it will fit into what we're doing better. I really like to do that in the player primer, you know, and what that looks yeah, like. Totally. Remember we talked about earlier, it's like in my ideal, it's like four pages, two pieces of paper. So I'll look at it as I think a good shorthand is what are the class slash archetypes that players are allowed to be? So, you know, if I want barbarians in my steampunk setting, but I want them to be juggernauts of battle, I'll rename it and I'll say, uh, let's just call it uh, Berserker or Juggernaut or something like that, or, uh, a war fiend maybe. And then I give a one or two sentence description of what that is, you know, in bold, war fiend. This is a character who has a deep understanding of the blood of battle. They are the rock, the tank at the center of any grand melee. And that's it. I think that's great. I think that really works for a player primary. It keeps it short. And you can do that for races or classes. Because like in some settings, it's like, oh, you're a gnome. Gnomes are like a slave race to this, uh, like to mind flayers in this world. I mean, for the Jubilees were slaves, all right, them, right, right. So it's it's one of those things. I think like whether it's class or race, you know, it's kind of nice. Like sometimes you're like, oh man, I don't want my dragonborn to be like that. But it really helps create, especially if you're doing a more political game or a game Definitely. where those world interactions and politics matter. Like if dwarves are a bunch of slavers and everyone hates them, yeah. that really affects like what you're going to do with a dwarf character. So I think like outside of like just what books are you going to allow, you got to think about like the in-game politics and the factions a little bit. And I think that's definitely the perfect thing to put on a player primer because it's like, Hey, heads up in this world, tieflings are X. Or if you chose this, that's cool. But like, by the way, Magic hasn't existed for thousands of years, and you are literally the first people to cast magic in thousands of years, right? That's a different, you know... Let's say you're playing a game in the Skyrim setting, the Elder Scrolls setting, and some player shows up and is like, so I'd like to be a dwarf, kind of like Gimli. Well, guess what? In that setting... It doesn't the, exist! The dwarves aren't around! There's they, none of them, you know? They don't live there! It's a perfect kind of thing you would want to be Exactly, and you, you want your player to know that so then they don't show up with this, like, huge character idea. I think something that helps when you're talking about character creation is to tell your players, come up with two or three ideas that I totally you like. Agree. I totally because, agree. Not because their one might not work, but because when people have one idea, they get so attached to it. Yeah. And I've done this and you've done this many times as players, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. But when you're like, hey, come up with your top three. And then once, you know, we're sitting down and really looking at what fits best and you could maybe, you know, someone, two other people want to play a cleric. So you're like, well, you know, uh, which never happens. You always wish somebody played a cleric. <laughs> Um, Someday I think it'll be hilarious to have a party full of clerics. Oh, and they'll all just be arguing about whose religion is best. It'll be great. <laughs> but I would love to play in that it'll game. Be too much like reality. Yeah, it'll be. Yeah, that might be too real. That might be too real. I would love to play in that game though. 
I can't say the other players would like to have me. Because mm. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what god you choose. Mm. Some might be more popular than others. <laughs> but I think that's like, you know, you got to set that up. And the whole goal is really just to make sure the characters are somehow connected to the world and each other. Because like we said earlier, it's not the GM's job to give your character a reason to be an adventurer. Mm -hmm. Like there's this unspoken contract of, hey, we're sitting down to play a game called Dungeons and Dragons where we pretend to be abandoned adventurers. Now there might be some stipulations like maybe we're evil adventurers or maybe we're all goblins, whatever. There's this unspoken contract. If we're sitting down to play this game together, if you want to make the edgelord lone dark ranger character who doesn't want to talk to anyone and is just struggling with his own darkness. Yeah, yeah, essentially Batman. Yeah, you could do that, but like, where, like what reason is that you're hanging out with the party? you got to like, that's your job as a player. We all show up as players that's, to contribute. That's the player's job. Yes. It's not the DM's job to give you a reason. Like, And then they're like, oh, I'm just playing my character. And I'm like, well... Do you ever consider you made not an effective answer? That's a cop out. You ever think bullshit? Maybe you made a shitty character for this situation. <laughs> How about yeah, yeah? You're playing your character and it fucking sucks. Yeah, you're just playing your character and I'm just doing my job as the DM. I'm gonna kill your character. And I'm gonna make you roll up another one. Yeah. Oh, you did the same thing. I'm gonna kill that one too. Man, I wish we oh, had actually, talked oh, the, about the group this. kills you this time. I don't have to worry about it. Mm. And this is where session zero comes in to be useful because you can sometimes avoid this shit. Exactly. Um, I yeah, I think that's really the goal of like you know going through the pitching of the flavor and figuring out what setting people like so that you can really just give them enough to buy in with character because once you're bought in like you don't even have to worry about getting them to buy into your main plot line yet it's really more of that world and does that world appeal to them the plot you can deal with that later like you could tell most stories pretty well through D&D not I mean certain stories I personally think there's other games better suited to mm. like in some cases yeah. um, just due to the mechanics just mechanical limitations yeah. you could do it in Dungeons and Dragons you would just use so much homebrew and altering of rules that it might not look like Dungeons and Dragons. It requires more work than written, others. Right? right? Like, I know you and I are both big fans of things like Matt Colville's Stronghold and Followers rules because mm -hmm. we remember when you used to get a keep and, like, where's my keep? Why'd you take that away from me? I'm a fighter. I'm level nine. I get a keep. So I think for character creation, you really have to make sure that there's some buy-in. And the more you can get people to connect their characters, the better, because it makes your job easier. I agree. Um, and I think the biggest tip, I think, when it comes to character creation as a DM, especially if you're a new DM, is don't be afraid to say no. Now, you may use the no, but you can do this, or but you can make it this way. Don't be afraid to say no. Because like we said at the start, like a session zero is not a checklist to make everybody happy and on the same page, because any person in any campaign can name one thing about that campaign they don't like. You're not going to like everything. Welcome like to reality. Players who like role-playing aren't going to be happy if there's too much combat. It's just, you know, I mean, unless it's really well-run combat, which you can do. It just depends. So I think not being afraid to say no is really important, especially if it's a new player or you're just setting expectations is, hey, sometimes the DM's going to say no. And sometimes with a new DM, you're afraid to do that because you think, hey, I might ruin their player experience. You want to succeed. But really, the thing is, in the long term, if you say no, they might have a better player experience because they've created a character more suited to have fun in that campaign that you're running and designing. This is why I like no but better than yes and. Same. I think that no but allows the DM to be like, no, but here's this complicated twist that is gives you some of what you want, what you want, but also allows me to spin it in a way that suits either other player need or my own. Need. It also feels, at least for me, it feels more collaborative almost. Yes, yeah. because it's like, yes, I see that, and this is how it's. Good. I think it's important. I mean, one of the ob most obvious ways I think to do it, just because it's like 
well, what do you? What does a no butt look like? Is I want to have magic armor, or I want to be Iron Man. Prince, can I? Can I be Iron Man? Yeah, that's a great example. Can I be Iron Man in this in this Forgotten Realm setting? And the DM might say no, but you've heard of a suit of armor that a grand person made and, and got destroyed and made some schematics, and you are confident that if you were able to find that schematic, you could build it yourself. Perfect. And right? the player likes that. You just wrote part of their backstory right. for them, and now they're both going. You just, you just built yourself the opportunity for a whole slew of adventures based on, no, you don't get to be Iron Man to start. You get to be Tony Stark who finds Iron Man right. in your story. Exactly. I think that's a great way to do it because sometimes just having that conversation creates plot points for you. Mm -hmm. And you get in that. And a lot of the time you are, oh, so this is what that character wants. Mm -hmm. The player wants out of this game. And I think uh, that's really important. And we'll talk about that in the future, but I think so much of the game itself and the experience comes down to why is that person sitting at the table? Like we focus so much on how they interact with the game a lot of the time that we miss like okay, this is how this player is interacting with this game. Mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. What is driving these actions? Why do they gravitate to combat? Or why do they gravitate more to storytelling? And like, what are they getting out of this experience? I think that tells you, looking at that why instead of just the how in isolation, really gives you more ways to know what your player wants and like make sure they have fun. Which I think is really the most important thing about a Session Zero. Sure and this is one of the other things that I like to say explicitly at a Session Zero. And this is, I think, this is an area in which I, I always end a Session Zero if I can, which is, let's all remember, with all the players, sit down and, the, oh, we've all made characters, we're all going to start, maybe just before we kick off, if we get to role play or whatever, but I, I like to say this explicitly. Let's all remember that everybody is here to have fun. I have to say, you are really good at that. I think in every game I've played where you started the game, you've oh, made a point you. of saying that, and it seems like a little thing, but I think it's so really big. Especially it's a big piece. It's a big piece. I think especially for people who only maybe played when they were younger and dealt with a lot of murder hobbling or just like players. Or they like the puzzle suck. solving, or they like the challenge of combat, and that's a puzzle, or they get really into my character. This is a common pitfall. My character would do this, but my character would do that, you know, yeah. whatever it is. And I, I always just like to come back, look, this is a game. Capital G game. We are all here to play, capital P play, and have fun. So make it work. Whatever that looks like for us. And ideally, it's going to be collaborative, so it's not competitive, right? My fun should never squash some of this. That's one of the best fun. things about Dungeons & Dragons. It's not straight up competitive. Right. It gives you that, like you said, cooperative play that people go to video games for on another level. Yeah. One of the things I think that's really important to do if you're going to do a session zero, and it's really easy to be like, hey, let's have a session zero and get together with your players mm -hmm. and roll up characters and talk about all this stuff and then go home. And that's the wrong thing to do in my opinion. I think the most important thing about a session zero is that you have to actually play. That's really where the rubber meets the road. Really? I think so actually, session zero for you requires some kind of play? I think that at the end of it, in my mind, a successful session zero consists of we talk about the setting, we talk about the table and the rules, we talk about our characters, okay. and then we start playing. And so, ideally, we've, we've been able to, if I'm doing my job as a DM, I've made it so that in, let's say, a four-hour period, whatever the time slot is we have, 
we've been able to start all and and get enough of all of those things done that we can actually have an example of what it's going to feel like. Because I think that that's the most important part that you can take away from a session zero and give to a player. How does that group jump? You can have them make a character, you can have them agree with you in session zero about theme, about setting, about all that stuff, and they show up and they do something completely different because their interpretation is not the same as what you had. And so I think that in that moment, the, the real where the rubber meets the road is, yeah, we rolled up some parts of our character. Maybe it's only just we have our stats and our name, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and then we start playing. I think if you can get to play in that session zero, it's a magical thing. <laughs> like, it's awesome. Because if you can get to the point where your character, you allow them to step into the characters, like maybe meet each other and create that group buy-in, why are you guys adventuring together? Like, if you can get that and start to build that, like, team cohesion group at the start that's awesome and if you can end that whatever that micro session yeah is, it can be like a just very play end, like you don't even need to roll comp like with maybe some, you never roll for initiative just give it some setup but you probably start in a tavern there's probably a brawl at some point right. so you leave you it on some you cliffhanger know. it doesn't need to be super like, dramatic if, if we play and there's no combat i'm the player that's going to be like but but i want to roll attacks right right but I want to use these powers. I have I these have. cool powers. I just built this character. I didn't. I, I could drink in real life. I didn't come here to play a dwarf who just gets drunk in a tavern. But I think that part of it is like the role play has to happen. That's maybe one of the most okay. important things. Some version of it. And it, and in an ideal sense, this is just again. Now we're in Skyler's fantasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has. I'll to tell be, you about mine in a second. Don't worry. <laughs> it has to. It has to. It should result. It should not resolve. It should end. It doesn't have to be like a dramatic not cliffhanger. It. it just needs to be. You ask him, well, can you show me the key? And then the DMs, you know, oh, I'm talking to the bartender. I wonder where the key is that he has to that chest that he guaranteed that he would be able to, whatever the plot hook thing is. And then you end it there before they get the answer. Just unresolved so that you there's that. You have to leave them wanting more. Exactly. That's like the goal. Like, if you can do that, you're doing great. Set the hook See, and bait it. So I think that's one that's important to, like, you know, if you... Considering, like, when you're setting up your session zero, how important to you is it to get some playtime in there? Now, I know from a player perspective, I want to fucking play. I want to roll initiative, and I want to do something. I want to use my cool abilities, you know? So, for as a player, that's important to me. I want to get that play in there. But as a DM, I understand, like, whew, that's a pipe dream of a session zero. If you can do it, that's great. That, that's why I, That's why I think it's so important, you know? Just if, if you can get For there, new players especially. Hold that in your mind. Oh, man. Try if you can, you know, and, and yeah, and that, that way they can be like, oh, you know, I really enjoyed this, but I think that I want that maybe a druid is too well, complicated for exactly. my first character. Maybe I would like instead to play something a little simpler, and I'm like, okay, fine, oh, let's, roll you, let's roll you a you know, fire. You know what I love about druids that's so weird is back in the day, to become a better druid, you had to, like, fight and kill other druids. <laughs> and now they're, like, these tree hugger, like, oh, it was I, like I, Highlander. I, they were, like, I, Highlander yeah, before. They were Highlander before, and now they're like, oh, I don't use metal weapons. I don't, like, mm. Is that organic healing potion? Because <laughs> I don't do conventional. I only do free-range good berries. Yeah, things. exactly. Right? Like, <laughs> exactly. I mean, All right. So when do you think that you would, for you, skip a session zero? I would skip a session zero uh, if we are talking about like a group of people that I've played with for a long time and I know their gaming preferences and we've probably been talking about what campaign we want to play next for quite a while and maybe we've even discussed specific characters we want to do or a crazy plot twist or maybe we have an idea of like, oh, we want to run like an anime style campaign with ridiculous like name 
technique attacks, who knows. Um, so that case is one where I would avoid a session zero, and then other times it's where time is limited. Or like you're at a one shot, or you're at a convention. Say, exactly, convention or, or one shot. Because sometimes, like the one shot, the setup already has done the session zero for you. Right. Like you, you're kind of stepping into the shoes. Of, all right, you guys, like we've done one before. Where it's like we just you start playing. You're these goblins. Go with it. Right, right. We had you have characters uh, otherwise, but just you're stepping right in and going with it. So I think that's one time where the session zero could be. You know, you could ignore that. I have in a fantasy, and this is I think what I work toward. You know, I'm like, all right, let's. I think you've seen this. Let's do a, a very limited game. Let's do a little bit of a longer game with the same players. Let's do an even longer game with the same players as we build trust, share our imagination the trust is world together over time, understand how, what each player is looking for, what the DM tends to feel like, so that after we've gone through this, there's this... I don't know that I actually can summon to any mind examples of it in reality. Maybe it's just a fantasy, but... Uh, that there's this moment where the next game we play, we don't need one because we know each other so well. Ideally, yeah. Ideally, right? Right? It's like the I ideal mean, that I shoot for. And you think that, and then, you know, you're always going to have that player like, I don't want to be a halfling. <laughs> We're all halflings? Like, one of the other times... halflings, man. One of the times I think I, I would skip a session zero is I think that there's some real merit to doing a... I guess you could call it a session zero as a session one. That doesn't really make sense. But the, the way that in, in film they refer to it is res, which means in the middle of things. Totally. So, you know, you start in the middle of the caravan that you're on has been attacked. What do you do next? And to define the characters, this is something I learned from Fate, actually. To define the characters as you play them. Yeah, I mean, which it can be very powerful. Totally. Know? It can be really fun to learn... To get to know a character by playing that character. Like, hey, here's a character step in the shoes. And I think as a DM, to do that, you have to have a bunch of pre-gems ready to go. That's an easy way to See, do it. Mechanically, like, from an, in a more narrative approach, in a game, that's awesome. Like, if your players are down for that, oh, it's Even great. if you know them but, really well, you know? Yeah, but you might have players, like myself, who are a little anxious about, like, oh, oh I'm on the spot. Oh, no. Like, oh, I want to know more about this world before I create a character so I can, like, buy into it. I, oh, what if I make make a dragonborn in there, like some like slave race here, and I'm like I'm very disappointed with my choice. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, right. See, like, like, I want to feel like I have ownership over the character, but I think there's some caveats that go with that. I'm gonna do immediate res right in the middle of things. Start, and we're gonna make characters on the fly, which. Probably the session zero in this case is the the DM or GM saying this at the start. We're going to start in the middle of things. You have the power to assert things as players that are true. Yeah. Capital T. I think you could still create characters in advance and then still use that technique. You might. Easily you might. Again, the campaign. But even say for a player who's like, I want more clearly defined things so they don't feel so lost in this, you know, mm -hmm. whatever this is, then, then it, you could say, all right, well, here, here maybe in the fly of it, here are some things in this little bit of DM prep that you can Yeah, yeah, from. like a you card with the races thing. on it. Maybe here are some of the spells that you might know. That could be a kind of a cool way to do it, like to build that level one character through role play. Right. And be like, okay, pick one of these races. Or even through, I mean, role play. And more power gamers might have a, a problem with that. But like, if you let them know, like, hey, we can always change this later. Just go with it for now. I mean... Part of it, I think, and, and again, this is this is why I call it a fantasy because I think <laughs> I think that there is also an ability to you can even for power gamers say, all right, you want to know the stats? We can define it on the fly right now. All right, you want to have some crunch in particular? Here's a quick reference for the rules, and you want to be you know, a big 
smashy thing. All right, great axe, great sword, great club, salvaged car frame. You tell me, you know, like whatever it might be. But I think in order to do that, you have to have enough player trust that they'll be like, all right, I know, I know my DM's that, not going to screw me over. Exactly, like, I, know, I know they have my best interest. I in know mind. that they're gonna that they, that even if it doesn't, even if I'm like, I don't know, I'm gonna be a smashy guy, or I'm gonna cast some blood magic because it seems the most interesting. That they will give me the thing that I as a player show up for. Yeah, totally, but that's only because we've fun. we've been through it before. And like for you, I know yeah. that you want the tactical battle stuff, right? Yes. Like it's like okay, as long as I, that's in I there, I don't want it. I need it. <laughs> I know that he will be satisfied. Void where my soul used to live. <laughs> Um, <laughs> victory in combat, uh, but yeah, totally. I think player like like we said at the start, everything is dependent on the table you're playing at and who you're playing with. So when you know your players well, like you can get away with doing stuff like that more. And like I mean, I've always wanted to run a campaign where you roll for everything at the start. Mm. Like there's a table for your race, and then you mm. roll for your class. And, and sorry, your and you your just got to fucking deal with it. If you die, you do it again, and it's just like a meat grinder, old school dungeon crawl. Like I would love to play in a campaign like that. Tomb of Annihilation. Exactly. Like fighting. give me shit. Throw me like in Tomb of Horrors or something, and we'll do that. That'd be fun. I can do <laughs> it's that. Well suited for that. Exactly. Right. I would like to play Bob Three. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it feels like a roguelike. It that yeah, exactly. Right? Like, right. like I'm okay with that. <laughs> like, but you have to know that going in. I think the more you talk to your players about, hey, this could happen, or this is what we're going to do, the more they're going to be accepting of it. Okay, I think that covers it for this well, sessions session zero. Our, our episode zero. Our episode zero. That's right. For Fall Realms Radio, our podcast of many things. Thank you for tuning in. We will have more to come. Please don't hesitate. Share this. Tweet it. Instagram it, Insta, Facebook, tweet, uh, Snap, Tratogram, whatever the internet things that you use. All share the social media. All those things. Most importantly, share it at your table. Yes. People who actually care and know the what we're talking about. Social network. All right. Until next time. Thank you for tuning in to Far Realms Radio. We'll see you.